Well, good news, Charlie's here. Bad news, he's not up here. Now, Charlie just got back, Charlie and Patsy just got back kind of late yesterday from a long trip where he had been teaching and speaking, and that can be, that can really wear you out because there's a big demand when you go to these torchbearer centers. And so, you know, we want to give Charlie a break from time to time. And so I appreciate your willingness to just suffer through him sitting there and me standing here. <laughs> anyway, Charlie, Patsy, welcome back. It's good to have you. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to two different references for our scripture reading this morning. The first will be from John chapter 1, and the second will be from Hebrews chapter 4. John 1 and Hebrews 4. In John 1, I'll begin in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Two more familiar verses, beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with thanksgiving and recognizing the fact that you have not been silent, that you have spoken through your son Jesus, that there is nothing for us to guess but everything for us to know. And so this morning as we look at your word, as we listen to you, Lord, we ask for your wisdom to do so to allow you to work in our hearts what only you can do. And we thank you, Lord, that you allow us to ask such a thing because this is your will. This is what you want. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want us to consider what it means to know Christ as the Word. What does that mean? These are familiar verses that we've read. In the beginning was the Word. We've heard this, and we've heard messages on this. Some of us have read books on this, commentaries on this. But I want us to think about just how important words are to us as human beings. Now, how important are these words? Some would say it all depends greatly on whether you're asking a man or a woman. Well, a study was conducted once with this, you know, women are often given a hard time about this. I thought the, the study was interesting. There was 396 college students involved in this study. They were each given a device that would record what they said every 12 and a half minutes. 
which would amount to about 4% of a person's daily use of words. And what was found is that women speak are used just under 16,000 words a day. And men use just a little over 16,000 words a day. Isn't that interesting? Guys, doesn't that bother you a little bit? You know, when I found that, I thought, oh, well, now wait a minute, that can't be. Because I know what it's like to go for a walk with Arlene and listen. <laughs> How can this be? I thought there's got to be something different about it. And the study went on to explain it this way, that in general, they found that women tend to talk more about relationships. Their everyday conversation is more studded with pronouns. Men tend to talk more about sports and gadgets. Their utterances include more numbers. So we use about the same number of words. We just tend to talk about different things. It would appear that words are very important, both to women and men. So it's interesting that God would would give us this passage in the beginning was the word. Words can be sometimes uncomfortable, can't they? Came across this story, it reads like this. There was a prosecuting attorney in a small town courthouse called his first witness, an elderly woman, to the stand. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, why yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. (laughs) You lie, you cheat, you manipulate people, you talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a rising big shot, but you haven't the brains to realize you will never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. Well, the lawyer was stunned, not knowing what else to do. He pointed across the room and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? And she replied, why, of course I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster. I used to babysit him. And he, too, has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, bigoted. He has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anyone. And his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Yes, I know him. At this point, the judge quietened down the courtroom. He called both lawyers to the bench. In a quiet voice, he leaned over and he said, If either of you ask if she knows me... (laughs) Words matter. Sometimes they can be uncomfortable. In an old copy of U.S. News and World Report, I found this study. There were a couple of men that wanted to know just what happens to couples that end in divorce. Why does it end that way? So they conducted a study where they would interview couples that had lasting relationships and then talk to couples that ended up in divorce. They found... What they found was interesting, it's 
Well, it didn't matter, the, the relationships that lasted, it didn't matter on how, how in love they were as newlyweds. It didn't matter how affectionate they were in their exchanges. Or it didn't even matter how much or what they fought about. But what they found as being consistent was among those who stayed together, at the beginning of their relationship, five out of every ten comments I'm sorry, five out of every 100 comments was a put-down. Of those that ended in divorce, 10 out of every 100 comments was a put-down. In the end, relentless, unremitting negativity takes control and the couple can't get through a week without a major blow-up. Words matter. In the Old Testament, the phrase, the word of God, is used 394 times as divine communication from God to man in the form of a commandment or prophecy or a warning. Now, why would I take so much time with the introduction? Simply because I want us to think just how important words are to us. Our words reveal who we are. My brother and I had a friend growing up. I'll just, I won't say his name, I'll just call him Jay. Jay had, the most accurate description of Jay would be this, Jay is a liar. Every word out of the man's mouth was a lie. First time I met him in seventh grade, he was telling incredible stories to the class that were just absolutely unbelievable. He was also a member of our youth group. We went to summer camp together, went to his hill together. We went to Bible uh, Bible study together. We, We did all these things together. We'd go to movies together. We were friends. But literally everything he said was untrustworthy because everything he said was a lie. Our youth pastor called him out on it one time. I mean, if you would tell a story of riding a roller coaster with two flips, well, then he would top it having ridden a roller coaster with three flips. And the time he did that, there was no such thing as a roller coaster with three flips. But he had to do that. I remember my youth pastor one time calling him out, calling him out and just asking him, Jay, Why do you do this? Why do you always have to one-up everybody in everything they say? Why do you always, he was very upfront with him in front of us, why do you always lie? And he says, I don't know. I just do. And I remember sitting there thinking, I know, because you're a liar. Now, to contrast that, Talking about a friend of my brother and mine, I'll talk about our mother. Dad gave mom the nickname early on before Paul and I ever showed up of Sweet Marie. And that was an accurate description of Marie. And thinking about it, I tried hard to remember a time when what came out of my mother's mouth was anything but sweet. Now, there were times when she had to get on to me. 
There were definitely times she had to get on to Paul. (laughs) But it was never apart from the sweetness that was Marie. So much to the point that that was the theme we had for her funeral. And after the service was over with, we got people coming up to us, people contacting us online, sending texts that watched it online saying, that was an accurate description of your mother. She was sweet. And they would share stories with us and how that's how she lived. Our words reveal who we are. Warren Wiersbe said this, much as our words reveal to others our hearts and minds, so Jesus Christ is God's word to reveal his heart and mind to us. In our first verse there in John, Christ is described as the word. It's clear throughout scripture that God speaks and he wants to be heard. In Genesis 1, 3, we read, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Continuing on in Genesis 1, verses 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26, we see the phrase repeated. Then God said. In Genesis 8, 15, Then God spoke to Noah. In Exodus 33, verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. In Psalm 50 and verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. In our first verse, we find that in the beginning was the word, was the logos, That word logo simply means an embodying of an idea. And within this first verse of ours, John gives depth to the definition of embodying an idea. The first thing he points out is this, in the beginning was the word, was the logos. The beginning is a direct translation from the Greek. Now, this does not mean that Jesus has a beginning, but it refers to mankind's beginning. As far back as man can think, in the beginning, the Word was. The Word already existed. Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, and verse 58, before Abraham was... I am. The second idea that is embodied in this verse is found in the phrase, the word was with God. So we find here that Jesus is in relationship with God. This verse implies in the company of, or in the company with. 1 John 1, 2 reads like this, And the life was manifested, was revealed. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was 
with the Father and was manifested to us. So we see the embodying of an idea here. First of all, that this, is, this word is timeless from the beginning. This word is in relationship with God. And then the third thing we see in this verse is found in the phrase, the word was God. We find very clearly that Jesus is God. It's been pointed out that Jehovah Witness translate this clause as the word was a God. This would suggest polytheism, many gods. And that's baloney. It's also been pointed out that some interpret this phrase as the word was divine, and that's just plain ambiguous. But if we just simply look at the original wording here, it really clears everything up. The phrase that we interpret and the word was God in the Greek simply is theos imi o logos, which simply means this simple translation, word for word. God was the word. So what's the idea that's being embodied here? Well, the word, Jesus, is eternal. Jesus is in relationship with God, and Jesus is God. These are deep thoughts. This is incredible communication. Beyond what we can really fully comprehend, what we can fully understand, the last two, in relationship with God and is God, seems to contradict. Speaks to us of the existence of the Trinity. In chapter 14 of John, we find that the Holy Spirit makes up the third person of the Trinity. And we struggle with that. Pastor Stephen Davey shares a story of once talking with a woman on his front porch who was struggling over the idea of the Trinity. And just thought it sounded to her to be nothing but chaos. And Pastor Davey's response was this, equality in their essence, subordination in their function. Equality in their essence, subordination in their function, in the Trinity's essence, equal. In the Trinity's function, hierarchy. We see the same thing in the biblical description of a relationship between a husband and a wife. Equal in their essence. But different in their function. Each function of great value. If Jesus is not God, then you and I being here is a waste of time. We're wasting electricity. We're wasting the cost of a building and the consideration of a new building. We're wasting getting up early on Sunday morning if Jesus is not God. 
Because that would mean the one who lives in us is not God. Therefore, we do not have what we need to exist as we were created to exist. The Lord God formed man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. He became a living being because the life of God indwelled him. The image of God was seen in the man because the image of God was living out of the man. In Genesis chapter 3, we die because we lose life. We lost the image of God. But Colossians tells us this, now in Christ, something wonderful has happened. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope, the certainty of the very image of God. The very breath of God. Once again, living in man through Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not God, then you and I are wasting our time here. So to sum it up, God has something. Don't get excited. To sum it up doesn't mean I'm about to finish. (laughs) But to sum up what I have said so far is that God has something to say about himself through Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews goes into some detail about this. The students at His Hill and I just went through this a couple of weeks ago. So this is a review for them. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 1, we read this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he... Christ is the radiance of His, God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What an incredible passage. That God has something to say to mankind, and He uses His Son, Jesus Christ, to say this. And when He speaks through Christ, what does He say? He tells us everything Concerning himself. He holds back nothing. He communicates to you and me through his son Jesus Christ in such a way that he says, here I am. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The place of power and authority. Again, Wiersbe says this, Jesus Christ is God's last word to mankind. For he is the climax of divine revelation. There's nothing more for God to say. But, folks, there is everything for you and me to hear. And when the Lord says this several times in the Gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What he means is this, let him hear what comes in and live out what has been said. 
There is nothing more for God to say, but there is everything for you and me to hear. Do we hear? Jesus Christ as the word of God is the very revelation of God. In our text here, uh, or in John 1, in verse 18, it says this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He, Christ, the Word, has explained Him. In John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus looks at Philip and He says, Have I been so long with you, Philip? That you don't see me? That you haven't heard me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And He is the very revelation of God. God is not hiding. He is not dead. He is very much alive and He speaks to us, showing Himself to us in Christ. We see in verse 2 of John 1 that Jesus Christ is God's eternal word. He was in the beginning with God. Wiersbe points out that he existed in the beginning not because he, has, because he had a beginning as a creature, but because he is eternal. He is God and he was with God. What God has to say through Jesus Christ is Timeless, eternal. Hebrews 13.8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. John, or James 1.17 says this, Every good thing given in every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God doesn't change. And He communicates this through His Son. God does not change. And there's something comforting about that for us. Or there should be. Our family has a little dog. He's a Westie. His name is Winston. Winston's a handful. 20 pounds of just Pure energy. Winston has a routine every day, all day. It's a routine that we've given him. He knows exactly when it's time to get up. He knows what, what to watch for when it's time to come out of his crate. He knows to take off down the hallway, around the corner, into my office, and there he knows that he'll be strapped in to go for a walk. He knows exactly where he can start to go to the bathroom. This morning he was in a hurry to get there. He knows exactly where I sit in the evening. He jumps up on the chair. He snuggles in close to me. He'll go to sleep. He knows exactly when Arlene will put him down for the night. 
by what she does, how she moves, and he runs to the back door and he waits. He'll run outside for a few minutes and then come back in and he knows that he can run straight to the laundry room where Arlene will bring, take out a snack. He waits for the snack to appear. Then he will take off running down the hallway and dives into his crate, sticks his head out and waits for the treat. Takes it and he knows he'll be zipped up for the night. And all of this brings him great comfort. That nothing changes. Now today he was a little uncomfortable. Because when we leave church, he always knows it's Sunday because Kelly's the one that's walked him. I don't walk him any other morning but Sunday. And he, we come back to the house and he, he knows that we're getting ready to go away for quite a while. But he also knows that when we walk out the door, Arlene's going to give him a great big rubber thing shoved full of peanut butter. And he, he knows right where she's going to give it, and so he goes right there. It's only one day out of the week, but he knows that this is the day. And he sits there, and with big eyes and his body just about to explode, he knows it's coming. And today we walked out of the door, and he just looked at us in a panic. This is not how it goes. Something has changed, and it caused a disturbance for him. It's because Lauren was coming a little later. She was going to give him the peanut butter. But you see, God's not like that, is he? Nothing changes. He is the same. Hebrews 13, verse 5 says this. God tells us this through his son Jesus in Hebrews 13. I will never desert you. Nor will I ever forsake you. This was a great comfort to the church father, Polycarp. Polycarp was an old man. He had served the Lord for decades. Some of church tradition tells us that he actually was one of the children that would sit on Christ's lap as he taught. When he was arrested as an old man and he was marched into the arena where he would be murdered because of the same faith you and I share. The proconsul begged him to recant his faith in Christ and you can go home. Polycarp's response was this. Christ has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my Savior, who has been faithful to me for 86 years. You see, he was saying that Jesus has never changed. And that reality gave Polycarp all that he needed to face death. That God in Christ never changes. In John 1 and verse 3, we read this, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus Christ is God's creative word. 
What does that mean? Look at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 to 17 in Colossians 1. Gives us a little bit more detail of just what it means for Christ to be God's creative word. Colossians 1 verse 15 says this. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, our rulers, our authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is God's created word, and in being so, he displays, God shows his power his authority. God chooses to show his power in creation through his Son. God speaks. I once read of an elderly saint who on his deathbed had his family all gathered around and he looked at them and he said this, if God can create this universe and hold it together, (laughs) then he can take care of me and take me into this next step. God is, Christ is God's creative word. And then back in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we see that Jesus Christ is God's incarnate word. In verse 14, And the word became flesh, And dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's incarnate word. Jesus knows what it is to be human. Therefore God knows what it is to be human. Walk with me through the book of John. Look at chapter 4 and verse 6. Look how, it just, how he just keeps repeating this and showing this detail of Christ being the incarnate word of God. In chapter 4 and verse 6, And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. We find there that Jesus, God, as man, was weary. In verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus was thirsty. In chapter 11 of John, and verse 33, we read, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. Jesus was troubled. That word troubled means acute emotional or mental distress. Though he is God, fully God, he is fully man. In verse 35 there of chapter 11, it simply says that Jesus wept. He wept. Chapter 19, 
And verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. He thirsted on the cross. In verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He died. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. He bled. And then after his resurrection, look in chapter 20. Verses 24 to 29. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and he said to him, My Lord and my God, and Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. After the resurrection, it is clear that Jesus has a body. Jesus knows what it is to be human. Therefore, God knows what it is to be human. And he tells us this through his word, through his logos, through Christ. And he says this. Now listen. I know what it is to be weary. I know what it is to be thirsty. I know what it is to be troubled. I know what it is to weep. I know what it is to die. I know what it is to bleed. I know what it is to live with a glorified body. This is so incredible that God says, I know what it is to be human. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2, and in verse 7, we read this, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. It's an interesting phrase. It's a direct quote from the Old Testament. Within the context it's very important that we understand who is being talked about here. You see, if you back up to verse 6, you see the phrase, what is man that you remember him? And a direct translation of that would be this, what is miserable man that you remember him? 
Now, don't think he's talking about Jesus here. And some people would say, well, what about the phrase in verse 6 that says he is the son of man? And I say, good point. Same phrase is used in the gospel to describe Christ over 80 times. The problem is, of over 80 times, only one time is it used, does it use the same articular expression that's being used here. He's not talking about Jesus here. Made a little bit for a little while lower than the angels. What's he getting at? Well, in verse 9, there's a comparison now. See, he's been talking about mankind, but now he's going to compare him to another man. But we do see him. See, at the end of verse 8, we don't see man living as man was created to live. But verse 9, but we do see him. Who was made for a little while lower than the angels. In other words, was made like you and me. For what purpose? Well, verse 18 of chapter 2 says this, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see, back in verse 8 of chapter 2, we don't see man living the way man was created to live. Verse 9, but we do see the one who was made like us. Verse 18, who is able. Able to do what? Go to chapter 4 of Hebrews and look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, get this, has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The students and I were looking at this a couple of weeks ago, and we found this, that not only does he know about your struggle. But he knows it. Not, does he, not only does he know about your battle, not only does he know about your failure, not only does he know about the temptation you face, but he knows it. Yet without sin. He knows what it is to face it, and he knows what it is to face it and defeated. He is able. This is what it means for God to say, I know what it is to be man. You see, I know what it is to face the things that you face today. I know what it is to face these things and destroy them. And so that victory is ours as the victorious one lives in us by faith. Let me tell you about Howard the plumber. Those six years that we were in Louisiana, 
put me in places and situations I never thought I would see myself in. When we were full-time at his hill, I used to think, this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. That was my plan. I'll just grow old here. What are they going to do with an old man? They're not going to kick him out on the street. They'll take care of him. There's a cemetery on the property. We're good to go. But God changed everything very quickly. We found ourselves back home in Louisiana where I grew up, and I found myself having to do things and take care of things for my dad that I had never done and I had to take care of. One of those things was plumbing. Dad had several rental properties. And plumbing became almost a full-time job for me. I hate plumbing. (laughs) Because I don't get it. I understand the basic concept. I understand when it looks right and when it looks wrong. My problem is I don't know how to make it look right. Out of desperation, one day I got the phone book out, which means I went online. And I found a plumber. His name was Howard. I called Howard up. I said, Howard, can you help me? He said, sure. Howard and I got along great. Good conversations. And you know, I found out that Howard could go and face the same problems I had faced for several years now. He knew what it was to face the same problems. He had faced them before, and he had defeated them, and he continued to do so on my behalf. I love Howard. God knows what it is to be human. And he wants you to hear that. He has faced these things and he has defeated these things. And he wants you to hear this through his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus Christ, as God's word, has always been. He is and he will be. In other words, he is timeless. He doesn't change. Jesus Christ, as God's word, is in control. He controls the whole universe. He literally holds everything together. And Jesus Christ, as God's word, knows you. Words matter. And whatever you're going through, and some of you, I know what you're going through. You've shared it with me. Some of you are going through things that you haven't told me about, but I know this, that we all are facing things that we have to make decisions on. We fight the battle every day, and we often can say along with Paul, I do the very things I don't want to do. This is what God has to say to us. In these things that we face, I am timeless. I do not change. I am in control. And I know you. Do you live in the reality of what God says through Jesus? Will you take God at his word? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for speaking. 
through your son Jesus for giving us a complete revelation of yourself, for holding back nothing. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom today to hear and to respond and to live with the certainty of all that you are found in Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.